President Biden says Israel would be willing to pause the war in Gaza during Ramadan if a deal is reached to release hostages. It's Tuesday, February 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, what the outcome of today's primaries in Michigan may say about the future of this election season. Also this hour, ahead of a visit by President Biden to the southern U.S. border, insights into the factors influencing his immigration policy. You can be pro-law enforcement and also be pro-immigrant, allowing migrants to exercise under the law our asylum and refugee programs. Plus the story of a small Massachusetts landlord's years-long nightmare while trying to evict a non-paying tenant. We filed every single month with the court saying, hey, by the way, she's been court-ordered to pay rent. She's refusing. Mostly cloudy and 50s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Biden administration's top aid official is announcing another $53 million for Gaza. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports she's also calling for more access and protection for aid workers. At a World Food Program warehouse in Jordan, USAID Administrator Samantha Power says she heard about the, quote, catastrophic level of food insecurity in Gaza. She says the new U.S. funding is mostly for food assistance. That assistance has to reach people in need. And right now, the bureaucratic bottlenecks and inspection delays have to get resolved. And she says aid workers who are risking their lives have to be protected. The U.S. has suspended funding for UNRWA, the main U.N. agency that works in Gaza. The new funding will go through WFP and other, quote, trusted humanitarian groups. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Today is Michigan's primary election day. President Biden and former President Donald Trump are expected to garner the most support in their party votes. Michigan Republicans will also award presidential delegates later this week when they hold a separate party convention. President Biden has invited the four top congressional leaders, both Democrats and Republicans, to the White House today for a chat. They'll meet ahead of a partial federal government shutdown that will happen at the end of this week unless Congress acts to avert it. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says House Republicans are the holdup. While we've made some good progress on a number of fronts, Unfortunately, our House Republican colleagues are still struggling to figure themselves out. There's a lot of uncertainty over how the House will proceed in the coming days. But Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell warned all lawmakers in both parties to work cooperatively to prevent any disruption. The task at hand will require that everyone rows in the same direction toward clean appropriations and away from poison pills. Even if Congress averts this Friday shutdown, a second potential government shutdown could happen at the end of next week. The nation's top health official is heading to Birmingham, Alabama today. Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra is expected to meet with patients and doctors affected by the state Supreme Court's ruling on frozen embryos. NPR's Kristen Wright has more. Secretary Becerra says he wants to hear directly from families and health care professionals. Becerra has said the ruling will have heart-wrenching consequences for women and their families. The state Supreme Court ruled earlier this month that frozen embryos can be considered children under state law. The ruling has significant implications on fertility care in Alabama, and several providers have paused in vitro fertilization. Meanwhile, lawmakers are working on bills to protect the treatments. Kristen Right, NPR News, Washington.
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Officials in Brantham are considering a challenge to the state's MBTA Communities Act. The town select board is expected to vote tonight on whether to send a letter opposing the law to Governor Moore Healy and other state lawmakers. WBUR's Fausto Menard has more. The law requires communities and MBTA service areas to allow multifamily properties to be built near public transportation stops without special permits. Rentham is not directly served by the T, but borders several other towns that are. It therefore must comply with the law by coming up with a rezoning plan before the end of the year. If it doesn't, the town risks losing state housing and infrastructure funding. Earlier this month, voters in Milton decided to override that town's previously approved housing plan. Days later, the Healy administration announced Milton was no longer eligible for a $140,000 state grant. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Fausto Menard. Governor Maury Healy is calling the financial operations of Stewart Healthcare a, quote, charade and a, quote, house of cards. The for-profit company has said its money troubles are jeopardizing the operation of its nine Massachusetts hospitals. Healy says Stewart did not turn over enough of the financial information she requested last week. House Speaker Ron Mariano is echoing those frustrations. He says the fight for information dates back more than a decade. If anyone is feeling sorry for Stewart right now, they're crazy. Because Stewart has practiced a game of hide the the numbers, and they've been very successful at it. And they continue to do it under the threat of a letter from the governor. It's an embarrassment. Governor Healy has called for Stewart to leave Massachusetts. Stewart has not responded to requests for comment. State Attorney General Andrea Campbell has unveiled a strategic plan for the next three years. She says her office will continue to fight discrimination and inequities in housing, labor, and the financial services markets. The plan promotes public health and safety, especially in the areas of health care access and environmental health. Tickets for the Boston Pops 2024 spring season go on sale later today. The season opens May 10th with a concert featuring Harry Connick Jr. It'll be the singer and composer's first appearance with the Pops since 2001. The season also features the Pops' first-ever Pride Night program in June. Tickets are available beginning at noon. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. In sports, the Celtics host the Philadelphia 76ers as they look to extend their winning streak to nine. Game time is 7.30 tonight, and the Bruins lost to the Kraken in Seattle last night. Final score was 4-3. Next up, the Bees host the Vegas Golden Knights Thursday at 7. Mostly cloudy today, we'll have highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, a good chance of showers as winds pick up and temperatures fall to lows in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, rainy and windy with highs near 60. It's 34 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. 
And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Today is primary day in Michigan, and you may have noticed we are spending a lot of time talking about Michigan. That's because it's a big state and it's been up for grabs. President Biden won by a little over 154,000 votes there four years ago. And four years before that, in 2016, former President Donald Trump won by just under 11,000 votes. To hear more about why the candidates are working so hard for Michigan votes and how they've been doing it, let's go to Ann Arbor with Rick Pluta of Michigan Public Radio Network. Rick, good morning. Good morning, Michelle. So let's start with President Biden. What's at stake for him in Michigan? Well, the president has been really working Michigan, courting union voters, supporters of reproductive rights, and reminding people of Trump's efforts to reverse the election results in 2020. He says this is about the future of democracy. But he has a problem this year in Michigan, and it is reconciling with people like Dr. Mohamed Alam, who says he feels betrayed after voting for Biden in 2020, and it is because of Gaza. We voted for him. We gave him the victory. But at the end of the day, three years down the line, it's all fake, empty, and false promises. Michigan has a very large Muslim American population that's tended to go with Democrats. But this year, there's a movement that wants people to send a message by voting uncommitted in the primary. How would that work? Well, there's an option on the Michigan primary ballot, the Republican and Democratic ballots, to choose uncommitted. It is not a write-in. You just color in that bubble like you would as if voting for a candidate. So it's easy. So what would success look like for this uncommitted movement? Enough to show Biden he's at risk in Michigan, roughly 10,000 votes. That's close to Trump's 2016 margin of victory. Governor Gretchen Whitmer's a Biden national campaign co-chair. She says she takes this uncommitted effort seriously. This is a very high-stakes election, and I would encourage people to vote affirmatively for the candidate that most represents what they, what they value and where they think that we should head as a nation. Whitmer wants people to do a comparison. Remember that Trump called for a Muslim ban, for example. She certainly doesn't want a Biden humiliation and would like to quell this movement so that anger doesn't linger into November. So let's turn to Trump now. What is he looking for in Michigan? (laughs) It should seem like a low bar, another win on the road to the nomination. But Michigan Republicans are caught up in factional disputes. He's got to keep his Trump coalition together looking ahead to November. His past regarding abortion rights and LGBTQ rights could come back to haunt him with moderate voters. And so what about Nikki Haley? She seems to be looking for those voters for independence. What's going going. on there? A respectable Mm -hmm. showing in Michigan could help with fundraising and organizing to carry her into Super Tuesday next week when 21 states and U.S. territories will hold primaries. So, So before we let you go, you've been covering presidential elections in Michigan for some decades now. From your experience, what do the candidates who ultimately become their party's nominee need to consider if they want to win? Um, Well, to keep your coalition engaged and eager, don't alienate centrist suburban likely voters with extreme positions and get some traction with sympathetic but less likely voters to get out for you. That's it. That's it. That is Rick Pluto with Michigan Public Radio Network. Rick, thank you. Oh, thank you. How did President Biden's administration get into a bind on immigration? House Republicans impeached Alejandro Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, who is responsible for immigration policy. Biden's leading opponent, Donald Trump, promises mass deportations. Growing numbers of migrants overwhelmed the system, and Greg Abbott, the Republican governor of Texas, bust many to cities in blue states, where some Democratic mayors blamed the president for the chaos. 
A former member of Biden's administration walked us through how the administration handled the border up to now. Jason Hauser was chief of staff for Immigration and Customs Enforcement until last year. He says that as president, Biden eventually changed some of his predecessor's policies, but Hauser contends the main change was the number of people showing up at the border. Steve, I mean, the biggest difference between the previous pre-COVID numbers that the Trump administration saw and what what President Biden and the secretary were dealing with really is the drastic increase in Cuban, Venezuelan, and Colombian migrants. You know, with Cubans leaving, the economic and political tensions that happened in, in communist Cuba, and sort of the humanitarian, political, and economic instability that was occurring in Venezuela, that is where the bulk of that growth has come from. If memory serves, this administration and some past administrations have gone around country to country trying to improve conditions or trying to find ways for people to apply for asylum at the embassy rather than making a thousands of miles trip north. None of that seems to have worked or worked sufficiently. No, I, I would agree with you, Steve. And I think the biggest challenge is, you know, there is crises, political, humanitarian and economic across the Western Hemisphere. And, you know, there's not just the asylum seekers and the migrants that we've seen come to the United States, but there's millions more across the hemisphere. And enforcement or detention here without addressing the entire continuum itself is just going to continue to kind of fail if we continue to look through it through that lens. I want to back up just a little bit and talk about Secretary Mayorkas's response to this. Alejandro Mayorkas, the Homeland Security Secretary, has now been impeached in part because his department paroled people into the United States, meaning that there were too many people to detain. It was going to be a long time until their court hearing. So they were let loose on parole and told to come back for their court date. Is that a common thing for administrations to do? You know, parole has been used, you know, in a lot of different mechanisms, whether it's dealing with humanitarian issues where people may need to seek their doctor, where you may also see where other mechanisms where Border Patrol and our customs officials have been able to utilize parole over time. There was a, an expansion of the use of that authority. That's a law enforcement tool that they use for both the decompression and the ability to safely and humanely and orderly move people into both ICE custody and others away from the border. And the less time that Border Patrol agents are caught in administrative processing of asylum seekers, and they are moved into the process, that allows Border Patrol to focus on their mission, and that disincentivizes the smugglers and transitors in Mexico from pushing those larger, larger populations and overwhelming Border Patrol. Are you saying paroling people allows border agents to turn their attention back to stopping those who may be coming? That's exactly what I'm saying, Steve. This is a thing that I didn't know until I read a long New Yorker magazine account of the immigration debate. It seems there was an idea within the administration at one time that the United States should be busing people, that if it were done in a sensible and orderly way rather than a politically destructive way, that there actually were cities that would like extra workers that might take in migrants if they had work permits and it was done in an orderly way. What was that discussion like? Yes, yeah, Steve, there was a great deal of deliberation concerning what that sort of process should be. And we did look at the ability to, if we were able to, whether by bus or by plane, move a couple thousand non-citizens a day, process them legally through the, the normal Border Patrol processes, do background checks, et cetera, and then transit them into cities where there's more capacity, that that would be like a force multiplier to provide for capacity that would more humanely bring and orderly bring migrants into these cities. 
And that allows both ICE agents to continue to do their mission and keeps Border Patrol focused on their missions, but we did not. What would you have the administration do now? Right now, I think the biggest the biggest challenge that the administration is facing is the White House's need to see this not just as a border crisis itself, but bringing that whole of government approach and giving an immigration, whether czar or coordinator at the White House, the ability to sort of oversee the entire process and not just looking through it through the lens of what can domestic law enforcement and border policy do to deter or mitigate the push factors of migrants leaving their homes in very dangerous situations in some of these countries. In a political sense, is it too late for all that because now we're in an election year and anything that anybody does is going to be overinterpreted and resisted? You know, I can understand that thought, but I, I think if, you know, if the, if the White House and the administration were to move really aggressively now and sort of what I consider take sort of the, the bipartisan, look, look at what happened with the bipartisan bill in the Senate. They have an avenue here to really lead, determine what the overall goals and objectives is and, and figure out, like, how do they see the immigration system working more effectively? And this is the part that I, I carry with me every day now is the secretary was sort of radical in his pro-law enforcement and uh, rule of law direction to his staff every day. I saw that every day. But at the same time, you can be pro-law enforcement and also be pro-immigrant and pro-migrant in the way that allowing migrants to exercise under the law our asylum and refugee programs. And if you stay centered there, um, I think that uh, the administration could have some success. I just want to underline something that you said there, because this man has been impeached for allegedly deliberately defying the law. You just said that he was pro-law enforcement in a radical way. What do you mean by that? What I mean is every day, Secretary Mariorkas's direction were very clear. And that was based around the rule of law, based around what the rank and file leadership, civilian leadership need. And that was constantly his focus. Jason Hauser served in the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama and Biden administrations and is now at George Mason University. By the way, the White House says President Biden will travel to the border city of Brownsville, Texas, on Thursday to promote his approach to the border on the same day that his Republican rival Donald Trump is expected to speak in Eagle Pass, Texas. The political news today is up by the other border. Michigan is holding its presidential primary today, and we on Morning Edition have been hearing from Michigan voters. Our colleague Leila Favel is there, and of course our colleague Don Gagne is based in Michigan. Elsewhere in today's program, Leila talks with a union couple, husband and wife, who met while working in a GM factory. They know their union has endorsed Joe Biden. They're not so sure, and one of their issues is immigration. Elsewhere in this hour, we hear Leila with younger people, college students, thinking about their choices for 2024. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with 90.9 WBUR. We're following news this morning that federal regulators and nine states are suing to stop Kroger and Albertsons from merging. Also, President Biden says Israel would be willing to pause its war in Gaza during the upcoming Muslim holy month of Ramadan if a deal is reached to release hostages held by Hamas. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, students at Wayne State University discuss their biggest concern 
returns for this election year as Michigan primary voters head to the polls today. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's College of Communication. Presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Psy Center. Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. I'm Asma Khalid. As a political reporter for NPR, I talk to people around the country about their lives and their needs. And I believe there is one thing we all need, a news source we trust. Tens of millions come to NPR for exactly that. When you donate your old car to this station, we'll turn it into tomorrow's news. The news you trust. Here's how. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. Highs in the upper 50s today under mostly cloudy skies. Tonight it gets windy and there's a good chance of rain. Temperatures will fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow rain is likely. Highs will be near 60. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Charles Schwab, committed to putting clients first with financial consultants ready to serve clients and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. From EBSCO, committed to providing colleges and universities with relevant online research databases to ensure student, faculty, and staff success. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. A new effort is underway to save some of the oldest and largest living things on the planet. Giant sequoia trees generally live more than 2,000 years, but about a fifth of their numbers have been killed recently by extreme wildfires. The National Park Service in California wants to bring them back in a way that is cause for debate. Lauren Summer of NPR's Climate Desk takes us to Sequoia National Park. Giant sequoias are meant to survive wildfires. In fact, they depend on them. You can see this one has a fire scar at the base, a black triangle. Christy Brigham is chief of resources management and science at Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Parks. Back in October, we were looking up at one of the park's giant sequoia trees, one that's still alive. It's spectacular, right? You can see why people love them. Super quirky, it's got this funky broccoli top. It gives you this feeling that it's old. This one is old. It's been growing here for more than a thousand years. Its massive trunk is protected from fires by this rough, thick bark. Crazy thick, 12 to 18 inches thick. So when the KNP complex fire burned through here in 2021, this tree survived. And it did more than that. Below it, the forest floor is covered in tiny, fuzzy seedlings. Those are all sequoia seedlings. Yeah, it's awesome. Sequoias need fire to reproduce. The heat opens up their cones, showering the forest floor with thousands of seeds that sprout in the cleared out soil. And lots of bad things are going to happen to these. Another fire, fire after fire before they get that big. So they make a lot. 
a lot, a lot, a lot. This carpet of baby trees is exactly what Brigham wants to see after a fire. Further down the trail, though, it's a different story. We have now arrived at the location that we call the Gates of Mordor. There are big trees in this part of the park, some 1,500 years old, but they're blackened all the way to the top. Dead, 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 dead. This one's dead. This is where the fire became an inferno. It was horrible, and I don't think I've cried so much in my entire life. The forest here was primed to burn. Historically, it had regular fires, low-grade ones that cleared out the forest floor. Those were started by lightning and Native American tribes who managed the land with controlled burns. But when European settlers came, people started putting out fires. We have put out more than 90 lightning strikes in this area in the 100 years that we've been managing. Without those fires, a lot of dead vegetation built up. That includes smaller trees killed in California's recent droughts, made worse by climate change. Over two summers, extreme fires killed as many as 14,000 sequoias. It shocked ecologists like Brigham. We had never seen anything like this in giant sequoia. Large giant sequoias before now survived wildfire. And in spots like this one, there's another concern. So we're looking for the little lime green giant sequoia seedlings and we don't see any. There's very few seedlings here, that next generation of forest. And there are a few living trees to produce more. So the Park Service is trying a bold experiment. A line of mules is winding its way through the burned area with special cargo on their backs. So there they are. That's the sequoias right there. Yep. They're bags of sequoia seedlings that are about to be planted. Josiah, how'd you feel about this spot? Micah Craig is here with a team from the Eastern Sierra Conservation Corps. He digs a small hole and tucks the four-inch seedling into the dirt. Planting sequoias, I mean, that's like a legacy thing. Something that we are all stoked to do that will, you know, transcend after us. But this tiny seedling will grow up in a world that's changing. Temperatures are getting hotter, which threatens these trees. So the Park Service is trying to plan for that. While most of these seedlings come from seeds from this exact grove, 20% are from nearby sequoia groves that are lower in elevation and already seeing hotter conditions. There may actually be some genes or adaptations in those populations to hotter, drier conditions. The idea is to increase the genetic diversity of this grove by bringing in seedlings that would never get here otherwise. We have the ability to give this grove a little bit of a bigger toolkit for adapting to changing conditions, and that's what we're trying to do. We're asking a lot of these trees to survive for 400 years, 1,000 years, and they can do it, but let's give them a little help. But not everyone agrees sequoias need the help. We need to allow nature some places where human beings aren't trying to be the managers, aren't trying to be the gardeners. George Nickus is executive director of Wilderness Watch, a nonprofit group focused on wilderness protection. His group has sued to stop the sequoia replanting project since it's happening in a designated wilderness area. Nickus says even with the human impacts on sequoia trees, like climate change and putting out fires, wilderness areas shouldn't be touched. Because we're the ones that messed it up, it doesn't flow that we're the ones to fix it. That's that sort of arrogance of humanism, if you will. That's, that's when we need to learn to step back. Scientific studies show that sequoia seedlings die in high numbers when they're young. But Nika says there's a chance sequoias could come back on their own. But if they don't, or they don't 
come back exactly the way we would prefer, the Park Service might prefer, whatever. That's the way it is in nature. The National Park Service doesn't talk about pending lawsuits, but in public comments has said that wilderness protections still allow the agency to do preservation work. We are supposed to preserve wilderness character, and part of the wilderness character of this place is giant sequoias. This is a debate that's happening on public lands all over. Humans are drastically changing the planet. So how much should we intervene to try to fix it? Brigham says sequoia trees, as some of the biggest and longest living things on the planet, force that conversation. You cannot look at them without thinking about a thousand years in the future. They demand better of us. And I think we need that. We need those species that are being impacted by climate change that we love to be like, hey, I think you can do better. A judge will hear the lawsuit against the Sequoia Replanting Project later this spring. Lauren Summer, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, cases of measles are rising in Florida as the state's Surgeon General defies federal guidelines and refuses to urge people there to vaccinate their children. It's 729. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering at City Space on Monday for a conversation with Maria Inojosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets are at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Museum of Science with Changing Landscapes and Immersive Journey, a new exhibit transporting you to iconic spots around the globe, MOS.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Congressional leaders are expected at the White House today for talks with President Biden. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, lawmakers are facing a Friday deadline to prevent a partial shutdown of the federal government. The White House says the president is planning to discuss the urgency of legislation to keep federal agencies funded past midnight on Friday. And Biden will likely have something to say about his repeated requests for additional security aid for Ukraine and Israel. The spending bill is being held up by a group of Republican hardliners in the House who are demanding provisions that both Democrats and some Republicans are unlikely to support. Speaking in New York yesterday, the president said he's hopeful a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas will be announced by Monday of next week. Former President Donald Trump is looking for a win in today's Republican presidential primary in Michigan. NPR's Don Gagne says President Biden expects a victory on the Democratic side despite some vocal critics in the party. President Biden faces only minor challengers on the ballot, except there is one challenge to Biden that is really worth watching today. It's an orchestrated campaign by pro-Palestinian activists who are angry, and that is an understatement. This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
A committee of Massachusetts lawmakers will begin reviewing five proposed ballot initiatives next week. They'll start with a hearing on Monday about a measure to remove MCAS scores as a high school graduation requirement. Advocates say the standardized test does not accurately measure a student's academic performance. The committee will have until May 1st to either approve the petitions, suggest another solution, or leave the plans as they are. If lawmakers don't act, sponsors will need to collect more signatures in order to secure a spot on the November ballot. Congressman Jake Auchincloss of Massachusetts is pushing for Congress to pass an aid package for Ukraine. The Senate already approved a package that includes $60 billion for the war-torn country. But House Republican leaders haven't taken it up yet. Auchincloss told CNN the money is needed to stop an autocratic vision for the world coming from leaders in Russia and China. They want to stamp out freedom and democracy, not only in their own countries, but the world over. And Ukraine is on the front lines of the fight against that autocratic vision, which is why it's so critical that Speaker Johnson bring the Ukraine aid bill to the floor. President Biden has warned that if Russia wins the war in Ukraine, it could attack a NATO country that the U.S. would be bound to help defend. Two Cambridge chefs are teaming up to make a locally sourced meal tonight. The owners of Urban Hearth and Puritan and Company are hosting a 100-mile dinner. All the ingredients are sourced from farms, distilleries, and other local growers within 100 miles of Cambridge. Urban Hearth chef Aaron Miller even foraged some of the ingredients herself. There is a dynamic small agriculture system that is thriving here in Massachusetts and greater New England that even in the wintertime, they are producing, they are growing, they are sharing their craft and their product and their land with us. Tonight's five-course menu includes a scallop crudo, mushrooms with lamb belly bacon, and a dessert with locally foraged black walnuts. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Umbrella Arts with The Minutes. A small-town city council meeting unravels in Tracy Lett's darkly comic mystery opens Friday. TheUmbrellaArts.org. The Bruins had a tough night on the ice last night. They lost to the Kraken in Seattle. Final score was 4-3. to three. They look to turn it around on Thursday when they host the Vegas Golden Knights at 7 p.m. Meanwhile, the Celtics are racking up the wins. They are looking for a ninth win in a row when they host Philadelphia tonight at 7.30. A mix of sun and clouds today, and our warm-up continues with highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, there's a good chance of rain and some gusty winds, and temperatures fall to the upper 40s. Then rain and gusty winds tomorrow with highs in the upper 50s. It's 34 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Faldil. In the wake of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade, young voters in Michigan turned out more than anywhere else in the country. Democrats flipped a seat in Congress and took full control of the state government. So will young voters turn out again in this critical state for this presidential election? We sat down with a group of students at Wayne State University in Detroit ahead of today's primaries. 
My name is Jovan Martin. I study global studies. I'm from Detroit, Michigan, and I'm a junior here at Wayne State. Hello, my name is Addison Tracy. I'm a sophomore and 21 years old. I'm studying sociology and history. Uh, my name is Armando Jerji. I'm 21 years old. I'm a junior at Wayne State studying computer science. Hello, my name is Kaya Brazil. I'm 30 years old. I'm a senior here studying psychology. I do find myself being a lot more apprehensive about voting democratic if not being undecided at all and not wanting to vote. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like any choice is really a good choice at all. So what are you going to do? It's either not vote or vote undecided. What would you say when you think about who you want to represent you as an American? For one, with Biden, I believe that we were sold a dream about them addressing issues with student loans and the outrageous and predatory nature of that system. And there's nothing being done for it. There's nothing really substantial. And I understand that it also has to do with the pushback and the support that you're able to garner, but it doesn't stop that from being an issue for me. It doesn't stop that from affecting my thought process of when do I get to be a real adult? When do I get to be a, buy a house? Mm -hmm. So economy and your bot the bottom line, like being able to put food on the table and buy a house and... Yes, because we're at a point where it is not a luxury of having two jobs. It is, how do I fit these two jobs into what needs to get done? Are you working and going to school? Yes, I work full-time and I go to school full-time. I started going to school full-time once I let go of my second job. I'd had a second job for about five years. I've had two to three jobs for five years mm -hmm. until I started being full-time here. And I can't tell you how much I cried when I had to step down from being full-time at both of those jobs and be in school because this is what I want to do. What about you? This is Addison, and this is the first presidential election I'll be eligible to vote in. Last election, I remember feeling disappointed that I couldn't vote because it felt more meaningful then. It felt like a reaction against Trump. I consider myself to be a leftist. There was also what felt like an exciting possibility of other candidates before Joe Biden was chosen. I remember being excited about Bernie Sanders and the possibility of him being president one day or even Elizabeth Warren. And I remember being disappointed when Joe Biden was chosen then, but it still felt meaningful because it was a way to signal that I and other people were not okay with what Donald Trump was doing in the country. And rolling around to this election and being able to vote in it with probably the same two candidates and two choices, it no longer feels as meaningful. I maybe look at it as a form of harm reduction in that we can maybe get more things done with Biden in office to protect some human rights, things like protection for queer people or women's rights, having someone who is more protective of abortion rights. So it feels like there is some significance to it, but it's not going far enough. This is Armando. With this question, for me, a lot of topics jump to mind, mm -hmm. but at the you know forefront of it, for me, would be U.S. involvement in like foreign conflicts, like as a whole. Mm. And I would love to see the U.S. not be an arms provider for like the world at large, but also is the LGBT protection like she touched on. I think it's been a major growing issue, especially in the South and in red states. There's been a this just regression 
and you see in like increased parent involvement in like public schools leading to like libraries being emptied out. I saw recently they needed a permission slip signed because they were going to read a book written by a black person in a, in a Florida school. On the Democrat side, it feels like they're using these issues as a boogeyman, like it's going to get worse if the other side wins, but it's getting worse right now and they're not doing much about it. It doesn't feel like there's much diversity on the ballot on those topics. So I'm really heavily leaning towards a third party. If you could speak to these candidates that are running in the primaries on Tuesday, what do they need to do to get your support? We need a livable wage. It is absolutely ridiculous that you can work 40 plus hours and not be able to support yourself, let alone a family. This is Jovan. If you look at how the people at the bottom are living in America, it is mind-blowing. It's, it's insane. And then it just gets ignored. It gets swept under the rug. Like, oh, America's great. Like, we're good. Like, this is good. Like, we're, it's a great country. But at the end of the day, in Vegas, there's people living underground in tunnels, and these tunnels flood, and then they die. And it's like, what country is this? Like, where are we really living? And it's the fact that we do deserve more as people. I understand a lot of hardcore liberals that will listen to this and be like, at the end of the day, you have to pick, you have to pick, you have to pick. You know what I mean? You need to pick Biden. And I do understand that. But also at the same time, it's the idea of feeling like you're not listened to, feeling like we're in, we're not actually in a democracy. And it's something that's driven by power and wealth. This is Armando. Personally, I'm not a fan of the rhetoric with like, this being the most consequential election or mm -hmm. Trump being a threat to democracy, like mm -hmm. you'll end it. If the election of one guy would end our democracy, then how democratic are things really? Like how, how strong is the system we're I see a lot we're of agreement with? at the table. Everybody's nodding. So when people are saying, this is the most consequential, this is a threat to democracy, you're like, okay, and was what was last year and what was the year before? Exactly. It's just, yeah, they, okay. they're pulling out the same slogans and phrases mm. they do for the election year. I want a new boogeyman. You want a new boogeyman? Yeah, this one come every four years. I need a new boogeyman. Maybe it's a bad thing that I want that, but like, bring me something new to be afraid of. I start to say goodbye, then Morning Edition editor Rena Advani asks one last question. Do any of you have optimism about anything? <laughs> yeah, I think I'm optimistic about this, about this table. At the end of the day, we are the future, you know what I mean? And if we're able to talk and convey these things, this is democracy. That was Jovan Martin, Kaya Brazil, Armando Jerji, and Addison Tracy. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, as primary voters go to the polls in the swing state of Michigan, United Auto Workers members talk about election issues and their union's endorsement of President Biden. Mostly overcast and upper 50s today. Tonight, cloudy and windy with a good chance of rain. It'll be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, rain is likely and the gusty winds continue. We'll have temperatures near 60. It's 35 degrees in Boston.
WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com slash go, and Maplewood Country Day Camp Southeast in Mass, where since 1965 their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim, maplewoodyearround.com. The Federal Trade Commission is blocking a proposed merger between grocery giants Kroger and Albertsons. Albertsons owns Shaw's and Star Market locations across Massachusetts. The agency says the deal would eliminate competition and raise prices for consumers. The companies say the merger would help them better compete with companies like Costco and Walmart. They say they plan to appeal the ruling. Bedford-based iRobot did not meet its revenue goals for last year. It tells the Boston Business Journal revenue shrank 25 percent, bringing it under $1 billion. The company also expects similar losses in revenue this year. The reports come after federal regulators blocked a proposed merger with Amazon. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution on Cape Cod is getting $25 million for ocean research. The money from a private investor is set to be distributed over the next five years. The nonprofit organization tells the Boston Globe it plans to use the money to study how the ocean can trap carbon from the atmosphere. It's 744. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. Good morning. Public health experts are raising the alarm over a measles outbreak in South Florida that started at an elementary school and is continuing to spread. While school staff and doctors respond to a growing number of cases, critics say the state's Surgeon General is saying things that put students at risk of the highly contagious illness that was actually considered eradicated two decades ago. Reporter Kate Payne is with member station WLRN and is with us now to tell us more about about all this. Good morning. Good morning. So, Kate, you were telling me earlier that the CDC considered measles eradicated in 2000. So how did this get out of hand? That's right. So this outbreak began earlier this month at a school in suburban Broward County, about 20 miles west of Fort Lauderdale. So far, there have been a total of nine confirmed cases of measles in Florida with this outbreak. Six are all at that one school, Manatee Bay Elementary in the city of Weston. We also now have a confirmed case in central Florida in Polk County. And one of these cases is a child who's under the age of five, That's especially concerning because, according to the CDC, children younger than five are more likely to suffer from complications. And public health experts have been criticizing Florida's Surgeon General for not following standard CDC guidance on measles outbreaks. So what is it that he's saying that is causing this concern? So Joseph Latipo is Florida's top health official, the Surgeon General. He was appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis, and he has consistently undermined vaccination efforts, including the COVID vaccine. And Latipo told Broward County parents that it's their call whether to send their kids back to the school where the outbreak started, regardless of their vaccination status. 
he also did not direct parents to get their kids vaccinated. And that goes against the standard practices set by the CDC, which says that unvaccinated kids must stay home for three weeks after they've been exposed in order to keep them safe. Rana Alyssa is with the Florida chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, and she says she was alarmed by the Surgeon General's guidance. It's very disappointing to realize that our Surgeon General is basically misleading the parents. It should not be left to parents' choice. It should be the recommendations, actually, not to let your child go to school if they are unvaccinated. So remind people who may not be familiar with this, why are health experts worried? So measles is a serious disease that can be life-threatening. It's incredibly easy to spread and can lead to serious complications. One in a thousand cases develop encephalitis, which is swelling of the brain. That can leave the child deaf or with an intellectual disability. And about one to three out of every 1,000 cases are fatal. So, Kate, before we let you go, how many people in this South Florida community have had their shots? So as far as students, the most recent state data shows that 92% of kindergartners in Broward County are vaccinated. It's about the same statewide. And that's less than the 95% that the CDC says is needed to have herd immunity to prevent outbreaks like this one. Florida law does require students to get the vaccine against measles and a number of other shots before they enroll in school, but parents can opt out for religious or medical reasons. And we've seen vaccine uptake rates slip in recent years, not just in Florida. Okay. That is WLRN reporter Kate Payne. Kate, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. It's a Tuesday on WBUR. Coming up in about a half hour here on Morning Edition, Lindsay Lohan and other celebrities were tricked into calling for the ouster of Moldova's president. It's the latest example of an app called Cameo being used for an apparent political propaganda operation. It's 749. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by becoming a man at ART, a world premiere play about one man's gender transition amid a pivotal American political moment. Now through March 10th, amrep.org. BUR is such a critical part of my life that I just wanted to make sure that BUR is still here for the next generation and the next generation after that. Your legacy is WBUR's future. Learn more at wbur.org legacy. The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, Joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Voters in Michigan are heading to the polls today for the state's presidential primaries. President Biden says he's hopeful for a ceasefire in Gaza by Monday. And Congress has initiated the formal process for preparing for a partial government shutdown ahead of Friday's funding deadline. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Upper 50s today under mostly overcast skies. Upper 40s tonight and there's a good chance of rain and some gusty winds. Back to the upper 50s tomorrow and rain is likely. It'll also be windy. It's 35 degrees in Boston. 
WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. You're listening to Morning Edition on WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The number of eviction filings for non-payment of rent jumped 38 percent last year in Massachusetts. But landlords complain that it's getting harder to evict tenants who don't pay their rent. WBUR Simone Rios brings us the story of a property owner in Rockland who fought for nearly two years to get his apartment back. Peter Avitabile is 34 and works overseeing commercial property maintenance. He was living in a townhouse south of Boston when he met his future wife. They decided to buy a single-family home where they'd raise the baby that was on the way. They'd hang on to the townhouse as a nest egg. We'd either, you know, rent it out or we could sell it later on down the line, obviously hoping that it would appreciate in value. Avitabile says at first everything went as planned. They rented the place to a local hospital worker, Cassandra Schneider, who had decent references. But by late 2021, she started missing rent. And it was at that point where it was three months in. And I was still trying to even communicate with her, and she had just full-on stopped answering. By July of 2022, he was out five months' rent at $2,100 a month. He did something most landlords hope they never have to. He went to housing court to get Schneider evicted. The state's COVID eviction moratorium had just expired, and Avitabile was among a big influx of new filings. It took nine months of legal proceedings for him to win an eviction order. But then Schneider appealed. My lawyer was like, Peter, I don't think we have anything to worry about. The appeals court would never pick this case up less than a week before the movers and the sheriff were scheduled to go into the property and remove her. The appeals court picked up the case. The eviction was on hold. The judge gave Schneider 10 days to start paying rent, but that flew by and the case lingered for another seven months. Avitabile was beside himself. We filed every single month with the court saying, hey, by the way, she's been court ordered to pay rent. She's refusing. We reached out to Schneider multiple times to hear her side of the story, but she declined. In court records, she suggested her daughter's father had recently died and the eviction would be hard on the girl. Schneider also filed counterclaims against Avitabile, alleging discrimination, bad conditions in the home and retaliation for not paying rent. He denies all those claims. The judge wasn't convinced either and ordered a new eviction for December 2023. And I'm still scared to death because she's going to appeal again. I'll bet money on it. I'm not done yet. I'm just hoping at one point in time the appeals court will finally just say enough's enough. Schneider did appeal again. We'll come back to that. Massachusetts has strong laws to protect renters from unscrupulous landlords. But the rules can lead to what some call the free rent trick, where tenants use the courts to get months or even years of rent-free living. Landlords say this was especially bad after COVID hit. It's not an uncommon pattern. Uh, What we would describe that as is is a professional tenant. Doug Quattrachi heads the nonprofit Mass Landlords, representing mostly small property owners. He estimates landlords here lose more than $3 million a month on non-payment of rent. So there are people who know how to make the system fail for a property owner. Pro-tenant laws have made evictions more and more difficult. That's according to attorney Jeffrey Turk, who represents landlords in housing court. He says there's practically a playbook for delaying evictions. 
right? So it's ask for a jury trial, uh, file discovery, file motions, file appeals, all of these things because it's just delay, 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 delay. In Schneider's case, records show she did not have a lawyer and represented herself. Fighting back can be costly for small landlords, even leading to foreclosures and bankruptcy. And Turk says there's a broader effect as well. When the landlord doesn't get paid, um, they're going to raise the, the rents to other people. They're not going to have the money to make repairs. They're not going to have the money to make upgrades. They're not going to have money to provide services. So it's just a trickle-down effect of, of the economics of it. Housing advocates counter that most tenants in court are not trying to skirt the law. They just need a place to live and may be struggling with other problems, too. Ethan Maskoop is a housing and public health expert at Boston University. Quite often, mental health issues and also economic issues play a huge role. And landlords are in that world. And you're dealing with people's lives and their, and their health. A moving truck idles outside Peter Avatabile's townhouse in Rockland, the morning of the third scheduled eviction. He says he just learned his tenant filed the last-ditch effort with the appeals court, but this time there's no order to pause the eviction. There's a cranky constable standing next to Avatabile as he jiggles a key in the door lock. Peter and his wife Taylor haven't set foot in the apartment for two years. There's no one inside. They look stunned as they walk in. Jesus. All this water all over this floor, and then as you saw from the ceiling downstairs, the entire... That would explain it now, wouldn't it? Clogged toilet. Yeah, tampons, trash. The place is covered with disheveled clothing, half-full iced coffee cups, a melted ice cream cake in the sink. There are empty pill bottles littering the floor, and the basement is set up as an illegal bedroom. Three serious-faced movers speak Spanish as they pack up all the items considered salvageable. The boxes will go to a storage unit where the tenant has six months to claim them. Avatabale will later get a bill for $4,000 from the movers. His wife, Taylor, has a look of disgust on her face as she surveys the apartment. This has been like a literal nightmare for us, and then to walk into this is even more of a nightmare when we've just been paying two mortgages, tens of thousands of dollars in lawyers' fees and court fees, and now we're going to have to pay who knows how much in damages. Upstairs is a young girl's bedroom, decked out in pink and purple and princess themes, the one well-kept room in the apartment. The scene leaves a lot of questions unanswered. It's a reminder that everyone pays a heavy price in an eviction. But for the Avitabales, there's also relief. It's nice to get our house back and, you know, figure out where we go from here and not have the stress of, are we going to get it back? Are we not going to get it back? How much longer is it going to take? But the way Massachusetts does this is just absolutely wild to me. Looking back, the couple wishes they'd paid Schneider to leave rather than going to housing court. That's known as cash for keys. Some landlords shell out thousands to get their apartments back. The whole experience cost the couple nearly $80,000. That's enough to make some people get out of the rental game for good. But the Avitabales, they have a new tenant coming in soon. This time, they say they did a proper background check. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simon Rios. Thank you.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explo, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explo.org summer. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Hisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President Biden says he hopes a ceasefire and hostage release deal will be reached within a week to pause fighting in Gaza during Ramadan. It's Tuesday, February 27th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, primary voters are heading to the polls in Michigan. United Auto Workers members say their union's endorsement of President Biden won't necessarily translate into votes. I'll take information from everyone, but I'll in, in the end, I'll make up my own mind, whether it's the union-endorsed candidate or not. Also this hour, a new study finds nearly one in five American gamers identify as LGBTQ, but few video games feature LGBTQ characters or storylines. Plus, federal regulators are trying to block America's two largest supermarket chains from merging. This is a very you know, concerning anti-competitive merger that would harm consumers and workers across the country. Mostly cloudy in 50s today. It's 8.01, now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is sounding optimistic that a deal could be reached within the next week to release hostages in exchange for a stop to the fighting in Gaza. NPR's Asma Holland has more. Biden was asked by a reporter when a ceasefire might begin, and he sounded hopeful. My, my national security advisor tells me that we're close. We're close. It's not done yet. And my hope is by next Monday, we'll have a ceasefire. Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, said on Sunday that negotiators from the United States, Israel, Egypt and Qatar had reached an understanding on the outlines of a temporary ceasefire in Gaza. Biden did not offer additional details. His comments were made during a brief stop at an ice cream store in New York City. But he has previously spoken about a hostage deal that would result in at least a six-week pause in fighting. Asma Khalid, NPR News. Today is Michigan's presidential primary election. President Biden is looking for another win on the Democratic side. Former President Donald Trump seeks to add to his delegate total as he moves closer to securing the GOP nomination. From member station WDET in Detroit, Quinn Kleinfelter has more. President Biden and former President Trump appear far ahead of their respective challengers in Michigan, but some activists want Democrats to vote uncommitted rather than for Biden to protest U.S. support for Israel's war in Gaza. And Trump cannot count on help from the Michigan GOP, which is locked in a fight over who controls the state party. Still, Trump told a crowd of thousands at a recent rally here to make a show of force at the polls and send Democrats a message. We have to let them know that a freight train is coming in November. Trump's closest rival, Nikki Haley, vows to remain in the race no matter how she fares in Michigan. For NPR News, I'm Quinn Kleinfelter in Detroit. The U.S. Supreme Court is wrestling with how much First Amendment protection to give big social media companies. As NPR's Carrie Johnson tells us, the justices are evaluating state laws that were passed to limit censorship of conservative viewpoints. Florida and Texas passed new laws after big social media platforms booted former President Donald Trump following violence at the U.S. Capitol in 2021. 
The laws bar large sites from discriminating against users because of their viewpoints. Trade groups for the big platforms argue the government cannot compel them to speak and that they deserve lots of First Amendment protection because they curate and edit material like newspapers and bookstores do. The Biden administration is siding with the social media sites. At stake is how the biggest sites engage in content moderation to block hateful, offensive, or violent information. Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, in pre-market trading, stock futures are higher. Dow Jones Industrial Average futures are up by more than 20 points. NASDAQ futures are up by more than 50 points. You're listening to NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Governor Maura Healey is increasing the pressure on the financially troubled Stewart health care system to sell its nine hospitals and leave the state. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, Healey says Stewart missed a key deadline to deliver financial documents. The governor ordered the for-profit hospital company to turn over audited financial information by Friday to show why it was missing payments to vendors and behind on rent. Stewart delivered some documentation but said it was waiting for the green light from auditors before releasing the rest. Healy now accuses Stewart of failing to fully respond because no auditor would sign off on Stewart's finances. Which says something about and speaks to the very thing that we have complained about for a long time, which is a house of cards and a charade that has put patients and providers and our, the stability of our market at risk. Stewart did not immediately respond to a request for comment. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Fewer people are departing the state's health insurance exchange. New state data show in January, MassHealth had a net loss of 13,000 members. That's the smallest month-over-month decrease in program enrollment since June. Officials have been going through rules to determine who's still eligible for state health benefits. That followed the end of a pandemic-era rule that allowed people to keep their coverage indefinitely. New England aquarium teams have spotted 31 North Atlantic right whales. They were seen last week east of Chatham and Nantucket feeding in an area that overlaps the shipping lanes in and out of Boston. Catherine McKenna is an assistant research scientist for the aquarium. She says it's unusual that they're on the surface in that area this time of the year. It was unusual in the sense of the number of whales. Um, so we had 31, but earlier in the month, there were um, upwards of 50 or more whales in that same area. And um, they've been surface feeding pretty much the whole time. McKenna says the Gulf of Maine is warming at one of the fastest rates in the world, and that could be impacting the whales' feeding supply. Scientists believe there are only about 350 North Atlantic right whales alive. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by ThoughtForms Custom Builders, committed to building high-performance, healthy homes and spaces that bring people together. Supporting NENSA's John Ogden Youth and Introductory Programming. Learn more at thoughtforms-corp.com and nensa.net. The Bruins are looking to get back to their winning ways when they play the Vegas Golden Knights on Thursday at home. They lost to the Kraken in Seattle last night 4-3. The Celtics have been enjoying a winning streak. They look for their ninth straight win when they host the 76ers tonight at 7.30. Mostly cloudy today. We'll have highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, a good chance of showers as winds pick up and temperatures fall to lows in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, rainy and windy with highs near 60. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR.
Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Leila Fazel. By the end of today, we'll know who won the Democratic primary in Michigan. We won't have a definitive winner on the Republican side until Saturday, but neither expect it to be a surprise. It's likely to be former President Trump against President Biden. Now, Michigan is a critical swing state in presidential elections, and Biden got a boost with an early endorsement from the United Auto Workers. But do rank-and-file members heed the leadership? We headed northwest of Detroit to Flint, where General Motors was founded, and spent the day with one family of auto workers. Hi! Are you Shelly? I'm Shelly. I'm Layla. Hi, Layla. So nice to meet meet you. you. That's Shelly Zissler welcoming us into the home she shares with her husband, Matt. We sit down in their living room. The walls are graced with family pictures, and there's a little aquarium in the corner. I start by asking if the UAW endorsement means they're voting for Biden. I will never let anyone tell me who to vote for. I'll take information from everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, in the end, I'll make up my own mind, whether it's the union-endorsed candidate or not. This work and the union run in their blood. The couple met on the job working for the same GM plant. He was my electrician. Oh, nice. And then eventually I figured out how to make my machine quit working so he would have to come over and... (laughs) I knew it when she figured it out, but I didn't tell her not to do it anymore. (laughs) Shelly's a third-generation auto worker, and one of her sons is now also in the union and an auto worker, as was her grandfather and father, a lifelong Democrat before he passed. She carried on that tradition as well until recently. My dad was diehard Democrat, so yeah. I grew up a Democrat, and was it was almost impounded in me that we're Democrats, we're Democrats, we're Democrats. Yeah. And last year was the first time that I voted Republican because I felt like Trump was better suited to run our country. She misspoke there. She meant the last presidential election in 2020. She blames Biden for the record number of migrants crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. Trump has vowed to crack down, while Biden blames Republicans in Congress, encouraged by Trump, of blocking legislation that would reform the immigration system. Shelley's husband identifies as libertarian, and he says he wants the government to stop sending money to wars abroad when it's hard for most Americans to make ends meet here. I really don't know in this general election if either one of them is worth my vote. Mm. Do you feel like you don't have a good choice? Yes. Within the last two general elections, I felt the yeah. same way. What did you do last election, if you don't mind me asking? I voted for Trump last you election. You did? Mm-hmm. And did you feel it like was, at that I, time? It was, it was a very painful vote. Both Shelley and Matt say they wish they had different choices. They say they're worried about how deeply divided the country is. I think we're mirroring Washington more and more and more. We mm. watch some of the hearings over there, and it's juvenile. And that's what's happening here in, in the country. So they're supposed to be leading us, and they're acting like fools over there. Shelley's 27-year-old son, Matt Vaughn, is sitting nearby. He says despite the generous pay raise he got in the most recent union contract, he can't keep up with the cost of living. We're trying to save and trying to take a vacation every now and then. It's almost next to impossible. Mm-hmm. It, it's... It's hard, and I struggled quite a bit. We're joined now by national political correspondent Don Gagne. He's based here in Michigan. He's covered the auto worker industry and unions for decades now. So, Don, 
We just heard from a union family. How representative are they of the union vote? So when you listen to them and you listen to their concerns, I, I would say that they are a typical UAW family, but I don't know that I would call them the typical UAW family. The UAW, according to their internal polling, their members tend to vote around 60% for the Democratic candidate. And here we have a family of people, they, they all appear to be at least, they're leaning toward Trump if mm -hmm. they haven't fully committed. So that would put them kind of at odds with where the union is more broadly, but not overwhelmingly. But it also shows that the UAW vote, like the union vote broadly, is not monolithic. A lot of people vote for a lot of reasons, even if they're in the unions. Some of them are voting on trade policy or on union issues, but some of them are voting on abortion or other social issues. So I guess the big question is how much does the endorsement matter? It feels like it's a pretty significant endorsement, more so than in years past. Again, I mentioned that number, 60%, where Democrats not only count on that, but need that, right? And in years past, there have been a lot of cycles, too many cycles for auto workers, where they've had concessionary contracts, where they've had break-even contracts. They've been struggling. They've been beaten down. They weren't necessarily ready to take advice from their leadership, right? Now they've come through a period with a new and charismatic UAW leader, Sean Fain, who just brought them through a successful six-week strike in the fall. They got raises in the range of 30%. They got new job security. There is a resurgent UAW right now. Mm -hmm. And the question for me is if that has an impact at the ballot box. Yeah. President Biden calls himself the most pro-union president ever. Does his record reflect that? Uh, it does. You know, he calls himself Union Joe. He talks about the unions backing him when he first ran for office decades and decades ago, and they've stuck with him and he stuck with them. Uh, he has consistently supported policies, uh, right to organize, uh, worker protections, those sorts of things that the unions have pushed for. And don't underestimate the fact that during that auto strike last fall, he showed up in Detroit and marched on the picket line with striking auto workers. No president had ever done that. And that same week, former President Trump came to town, but he went to a non-union parts factory in the suburbs, and the UAW leadership and the rank and file sure took notice of that. And NPR political correspondent Don Gagne. Thank you, Don. My pleasure. Shortly before setting himself on fire outside Israel's embassy here in Washington, D.C., a member of the U.S. Air Force wrote on social media that he would, quote, no longer be complicit in genocide. He was apparently referring to U.S. support for Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza. He was far from the first person to set himself on fire as a form of protest, and Michael Biggs studies people who have. He is a sociologist at Oxford University in the UK. Welcome to the program, sir. Good morning. I should state the obvious. We're talking here uh, about suicide. 
which also has a stated political purpose. So do you see self-immolation as any different from other cases where people commit some harm to themselves or others? Uh, it is. It is very different because in this case, people are acting on behalf, the individuals are acting on behalf of a, of a political cause. And so uh, in most cases, there is a no clear previous uh, psychological instability. And so often it's very normal people, very uh, people who are committed to a political cause who take the, the most dramatic step they can imagine to to uh, send a communication about the importance of that cause. I think you're telling me you do not necessarily see a mental health crisis here. You, you, you see someone who is making a very deliberate political statement. Yes, I mean, of course, it varies depending on the case. But, and of course, the actual interpretation of the, of the action depends on how sympathetic you are. If you're very sympathetic to the, to the person's cause, then you'll say, this person is a great uh, martyr for the cause and a hero. If you're unsympathetic, you'll say he was just, or she was just mentally ill. You know, when I heard about this incident, I immediately thought about a Buddhist monk who set himself on fire in Vietnam in 1963 to protest a U.S.-led government in Vietnam. This is before I was born, but I read about it, and there's something about this particular kind of act that sticks in the mind. Is that often the case? Yes, and of course, that's why we're, where we're having, having this conversation today, is because, precisely because it's so dramatic and so uh, t- such a terrible action that it, that it takes uh, public attention, and that's the, that's the whole point of it. Wasn't the Arab Spring sparked off by an act of self-immolation? Yes, yes, exactly. In Tunisia, um, Abu Azizi uh, set himself on fire, although it's not clear that he was actually um, had a broader political motive, uh, may have been just an act of frustration about his, uh, his particular treatment by the police, but that led, of course, to the revolt in Tunisia and across the, across the Arab Spring. Oh, you uh, underline uh, a big insight there, I think, which is true of many protests, many public events. It's not merely what the person does. It is how people interpret it afterward and make a meaning out of it. Absolutely. Yes, that is crucial. Yes. Although, of course, the, the individual himself can or herself can uh, change that by the way that they, the, the note that they leave or the, the particular um, location they choose for the action as well. So how would you fit Sunday's action when this uh, U.S. Air Force airman stood outside the Israeli embassy and set himself on fire, uh, was pronounced dead some hours later on Sunday? How would you fit that action into this broader history of self-immolation? Well, the clearest uh, parallel would be Norman Morrison in 1965, who was uh, a Quaker, and he set himself on fire outside the Pentagon to protest against against the war in Vietnam, and that uh, had a comparable impact on the on the news uh, at the time. And obviously, he was copying uh, self consciously, echoing the actions of Buddhist monks. Is it common that this becomes uh, a major event, a major political event that that may affect the debate for a long time after the incident? It has a bigger impact in, in countries outside the West, in countries like South Korea, Vietnam, uh, Tibet, and India. Why would that be? But it, in America, it's uh, often seen as, or in Western countries, it's often seen as too extreme because of the way we react to the, the, the method of, of dying by burning. And also in a democracy, we just see it as that there are, there are other ways of making your voice heard. Oh, very interesting. Michael Biggs of Oxford University in the UK, thanks very much for your insights this morning. Really appreciate it. Thank you. And I want to note, if you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, you may call or text 988 to reach the Suicide in Crisis Lifeline.
This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBOR. We're following news this morning that President Biden said Israel will be willing to pause its war in Gaza during Ramadan if a deal is reached to release hostages held by Hamas. But both Israel and Hamas responded by downplaying the idea that a breakthrough was imminent. And coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, federal regulators and nine states are suing to stop Kroger and Albertsons from merging. It's 819. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AL Prime Energy Consultant, distributor of wholesale gasoline and diesel fuels for retail and commercial use. ALPrime.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the engineering design workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, MathWorks.com slash MOS. The Voyager 1 spacecraft blasted off Earth back in 1977. It's now about 15 billion miles away, and it has stopped talking to scientists in coherent ways. My motto for a long time was 50 years for bust. (laughs) We're sort of approaching that. Hear how scientists are trying to get to the bottom of the spacecraft's discombobulation on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 W. B-U-R. Highs in the upper 50s today under mostly cloudy skies. Tonight it gets windy and there's a good chance of rain. Temperatures will fall to the upper 40s. Tomorrow rain is likely. Highs will be near 60. It's 36 degrees in Boston. Take a break and play the WBUR crossword puzzle every day. For a cross, it might be airtight. Play the puzzle for free at wbur.org fun. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks at progressivecommercial.com. From the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the US, Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. From Schwab, with Schwab investing themes like artificial intelligence, renewable energy, or pet passion. Over 40 themes to choose from. Learn more at schwab.com. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. On the app Cameo, you can pay a celebrity to record a personalized video. Often people want a birthday or holiday greeting, but sometimes these greetings are used to troll people. And lately, the app is being used for political propaganda by tricking the stars involved. NPR's Shannon Bond has this report. Last fall, a video appeared on TikTok titled An Urgent Appeal from Hollywood Stars to Maya Sandu. Sandu is the pro-European president of Moldova and a frequent target of pro-Russian political attacks. The video is bizarre. It shows a series of celebrities cheerfully addressing Sandu as Moldova's national anthem plays in the background. A message for Sandu. Hi, Sandu. It's Lindsay Lohan. Hello, Sandu. Sandu. Hi. That's action star Dolph Lundgren, Lindsay Lohan from Mean Girls, and Brian Baumgartner, who played Kevin on The Office. They're followed by several other celebrities. 
Then things get weirder. They all say the same phrase in very bad Russian. Here's Lundgren again. Dava eat ski nem sandu. Which translates to let's get rid of sandu. It turns out the stars were paid to make these videos through Cameo. Most of the actors didn't respond to my inquiries. But one, martial artist Mark Dacascos, was told the video was meant for a person named Sandu who was becoming a stuntwoman, his representative told me. Instead, the Cameo videos were edited together and posted on TikTok and in pro-Russian Telegram channels, getting hundreds of thousands of views. Researcher Victoria Olar at the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab spotted the video on TikTok and thought it seemed odd. The meaning of the messages they are delivering is different, you know, <laughs> it doesn't match the vibe of the video. Attacks on Sandu are ramping up ahead of Moldova's presidential election this fall. Olar says this particular video is not just about discrediting Sandu, it's also about mocking Western celebrities as doing anything for money. It was just for fun for them. They openly said that it was a, a trick. Cameo says tricking performers goes against its rules. But it's not the first time the app has been abused this way. Last year, propagandists used Cameo videos to falsely depict celebrities urging Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to seek help for addiction. Shannon Bond, NPR News. Just like movies, many video games have intricate storylines and characters. And as in Hollywood, there are conversations about how video games represent the LGBTQ community. Less than 2% of all games feature LGBTQ characters or storylines, even though a study by Nielsen and the advocacy group GLAAD found that one in five American gamers identify that way. NPR's Katie Klein looked into the disparity. Veronica Ripley plays video games for a living, streaming for a live audience on Twitch. She created an online community for trans gamers called Transmission Gaming. She wanted trans people to have a safe place to play Overwatch, a multiplayer shooting game. It's difficult when you're trans to hop on voice chat with random people because you open yourself up to criticism or potential harassment. But according to GLAAD, the anti-LGBTQ gamers are in the minority. Ripley said video games were critical in her understanding of gender. One game that made a big impact was The Sims. You can make an avatar and explore what it's like to try on a different gender for a little while. Games that allow people to do that are some of the best games for queer folks, in my opinion. Ripley has a similar story to a growing number of gamers who identify as LGBTQ, which is 17% of people who game an hour or more a week and 19% of gamers who play 10 or more hours a week, according to that GLAD study. Adrian Shaw is one of the study's head researchers. For decades now, popular understandings of the gaming audience have made people really think it's a core small group of adolescent, cisgender, white heterosexual males playing video games, and it, that hasn't been true for a long time. And GLAAD says there's an idea among game developers and the public that audiences are more resistant to LGBTQ characters than they actually are. Here's Tristan Mara, GLAAD's head of research. The large majority of non-LGBTQ gamers are not dissuaded by LGBTQ representation. It makes no difference in their likelihood to buy or play. 
Recently, there have been a handful of major games with prominent LGBTQ characters, like Ellie from The Last of Us, who's lesbian. I shouldn't have kissed you in front of all of those people. Oh, no, you were drunk. It's fine. Well, still, I just, I don't want you to think. No, I'm not reading into it or anything. Or the 2015 game Life is Strange, developed by Don't Nod Entertainment, where the main female characters, Max and Chloe, could end up together. You can afford to take chances whenever and whatever you want to try. For example, I dare you to kiss me. What? Michelle Kaur is the co-creator of Life is Strange. He said Don't Nod started as an independent game studio, so they had creative control. And at a point, we needed funding, so we went to meet publishers. We got some feedbacks from some publishers that, oh no, this won't sell. We cannot publish this game, even if it looks cool. But they did find a major game studio that would take that chance. Square Enix published Life is Strange with no changes. They say it went on to have over 20 million players. But many companies are still reluctant. And Core says, in the end, video games are a business. Everybody is making calculation and wants to know the numbers, wants to know if there is too much risk by adding more LGBTQ themes or not. The risk is significant in overseas markets where that content could get a game banned. If we were to release the game in Russia, for example, we wouldn't have been able to include this romance, this arc. Glad hopes their new data will encourage companies and maybe even the world to embrace LGBTQ representation in games. Katie Klein, NPR News, Washington. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, we will have results and analysis from the Michigan presidential primary. What could today's primary tell the presidential campaigns about their prospects for the general elections in the fall? To hear the story, listen to NPR on your smartphone, smart speaker, or on your radio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on Morning Edition, we go to Mobile, Alabama, where, like other communities benefiting from opioid settlement dollars, officials are weighing whether to treat people in crisis now or invest in long-term solutions to cut future addiction rates. It's 829. Every morning this week on 90.9 WBUR, we're visiting news deserts in Super Tuesday states. Ahead at 8.50, voting in a small Texas town without a news source. Listen every morning this week on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. NATO's Secretary General is dismissing the idea of the alliance sending troops to Ukraine to help Kyiv fend off Russia's invasion. NATO and allies are providing unprecedented military support to Ukraine. We have done that since 2014. Uh, <clears throat> uh, but there are no plans for 
äh, NATO-Combat-Troops äh, äh, on the ground äh, in Ukraine. That's Jens Stoltenberg speaking to the Associated Press after Slovakia's prime minister said some countries are considering that option. French President Emmanuel Macron says the idea should not be ruled out in the future. President Biden says a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas could be announced by Monday of next week. The president offered that assessment to reporters yesterday during a trip to New York amid negotiations involving the U.S., Israel, Egypt and Qatar. Biden expanded on his assessment during an appearance on NBC's Late Night with Seth Meyers. Ramadan's coming up and there's been an agreement by the Israelis that they would not engage in activities during Ramadan as well in order to give us time to get all the hostages out. That gives us time to begin to move in directions that a lot of Arab countries are prepared to move in. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. A Boston nonprofit is offering solutions for how the city can make amends for its racist past. The report out today from Embrace Boston outlines different types of reparations for black residents. Those include providing restitution for people harmed by marijuana-related arrests, spending more money on low-income schools, and increasing transit options in black neighborhoods. The organization is calling on federal and city commissions to develop targeted solutions to address the inequities caused by racism. Massachusetts's House Speaker says he's just starting to review the supplemental budget plan Governor Healy filed last month. The plan is meant to fund the state's overflowing emergency shelter system. It's currently set to run out of money this spring. The Healy administration's latest shelter report shows the state has spent $395 million on emergency assistance costs so far this fiscal year. That's about $70 million more than what was originally allocated. Maple sugaring season is picking up in Massachusetts. Missy Lieb is a coordinator for the Massachusetts Maple Producers Association and a sugar maker in Hancock. She says this week's warm temperatures mean the sap will be flowing. It appears that across the state has had an early start. We've had some of our members boil as early as January 13th this year. So it feels really energetic and nice because it feels like we got a good start on it. The association says the state has more than 300 maple producers. That makes it the ninth largest maple producing state in the U.S. It's 833. WBUR supporters include Bentley University's executive education programs. Elevate your career with short programs in AI, leadership, and sustainability. Upskill for today's marketplace. The Celtics get ready to face the Philadelphia 76ers tonight in Boston. The Seas want to extend their winning streak to nine. Game time is 7.30. Also, the Bruins lost to the Seattle Kraken on the road last night. Final score was 4-3. to A mix of sun and clouds today, and our warm-up continues with highs in the upper 50s. Tonight, there's a good chance of rain and some gusty winds, and temperatures fall to the upper 40s. Then rain and gusty winds tomorrow with highs in the upper 50s. It's 37 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies solve food, from employee meal plans to on-site staffing. With corporate accounts, nationwide restaurant coverage, and payment by invoice. EasyCater.com From Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, 
a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The U.S. government wants to stop a merger of grocery chains, and nine states are going along. America's two largest supermarket chains, Kroger and Albertsons, want to become one. That mega merger would reshape the industry, which now also includes retail giants like Amazon and Walmart, but the Biden administration in several states are suing to block it. NPR's Lena Seljuk is here. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, and I want to clear up the very important thing. I grew up in Indiana saying, grocery? People also say what grocery? Do people it, complain about that. I, I've heard. I mean, obviously, lots of people say grocery. I say grocery. No okay, one's complaining. Gr- grocery, it is for the course of we'll this. Stick report. to that. How big would these two grocery chains be if they're combined? This would be the biggest grocery deal in recent history. It's worth almost $25 billion. And so what you have is you have Kroger, which is the largest supermarket chain. It owns all these other stores like Ralph's, Harris Teeter, Fred Meyer. And then you have Albertsons, which is its top direct competitor. Hmm. And it also owns Safeway, Vons, Jewel, Osco. And together, they employ 720,000 people. They own about 5,000 locations across 48 states. And so the Federal Trade Commission, along with nine states, are suing to stop that merger arguing that it would erase competition for both shoppers and for workers. Wow, I'm realizing, listening to this, I mean, my mom, hundreds of miles from here, is shopping in one of these stores. I'm shopping in Everyone one of these is. stores. Yeah, so what is the case that the uh, companies took to the government that this merger should be okay? They presented this deal as existential to surviving in today's grocery business. They say, sure, we're top regional chains, but the real competitors are these national giants like Amazon, Walmart, Costco, even dollar stores. Walmart sells more groceries groceries than Kroger and Albertsons combined. Plus, they say the two of them are the largest union shops in American retail. And so they say blocking their deal would actually just boost these massive non-union stores. And they certainly expect a tough scrutiny. They also tried to cushion their deal by pitching a plan to sell off hundreds of stores in areas where they overlap to basically create a competitor to themselves. Hmm, Saying we are the union shops would seem to be an argument designed to appeal to the pro-union Biden administration, but it sounds like federal regulators weren't impressed. They did not buy the arguments on, for example, on the plan to sell the stores. The FTC said this plan is a messy hodgepodge that the buyer would struggle to run, let alone grow to compete. On the question on national competitors, I post that one to Rahul Rao. He's one of the main officials on this case at the FTC. And he said the review really looked at how people actually shop for food. For example, there's not a Walmart near where I live. And in a lot of rural communities, there aren't Walmarts out there. It takes days for Amazon to be delivered. Dollar stores don't carry a deli or a butcher. And the main argument against the merger right now is that Kroger and Albertsons compete head-to-head on food prices, on pharmacy hours, on quality of products, on benefit packages. And they wouldn't really need to if they're the same company. And Pierre Salina Seljuk, thanks for the update on the grocery, grocery, grocery industry. Grocery, grocery. Thank you. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters a third year, our next guest is trying to keep Ukraine's economy going. What's really amazing is during this war, the economy is still alive, active, and resilient, so there's a lot to do. Penny Pritzker is a former Commerce Secretary and now the U.S. Special Representative for Ukraine Reconstruction and Economic Recovery. 
The United States has provided more than $47 billion in support to Ukraine since the war began. Now Republicans in Congress are blocking more aid to resist Russia. A. Martinez asked Pritzker how she's working with American businesses and U.S. allies to help. There's a huge perception that the United States is doing all this work by itself, and that's not true. First of all, our allies have donated more money and more resources to Ukraine than we have. Second is they're very much working with Ukraine to also try and help their economy grow. You know, recently the EU passed a package of over $50 billion of additional aid over the upcoming four years. Everything from infrastructure to budget relief. How can reconstruction begin when when there's still a war happening? Well, first of all, let's keep in mind 60% of Ukraine has not experienced war. So there's definitely parts of Ukraine where investment is possible. We have good American companies that are expanding in Ukraine, whether it's Coca-Cola, which has its largest bottling plant in Europe in Ukraine, and its plant was captured by the Russians and then taken back, and that plant was reconstructed. McDonald's increased the number of its outlets in Ukraine by 10%. Citigroup is working to reinvest the proceeds that it's earning in Ukraine back into the country. Is there any reconstruction, any opportunities that you're focusing on uh, right now that are happening right now or maybe can happen relatively soon? Yeah, well, you've seen grain exports have grown three to four times just since August. That's because we've been able to demine and open a corridor along the Black Sea coastline that allows Ukraine's production of grains and, and in fact, steel as well to be exported out of the country. The tech sector has grown 7%. Most U.S. tech companies that have facilities in Ukraine are still up and operating. GDP was up 5% last year. Investment was up 17%. Tax revenue was up 25% in January. Inflation is down 7%. There's no doubt there's a war going on, and that's an impediment to extensive investment. But there is opportunity still today, and there is growth today. What happens to reconstruction plans if Russia wins? Well, I assume that my efforts will stand down, but that's not going to be the case. With U.S. support, Ukraine has the capacity, has the resilience, has the capability of beating back Russia. But we cannot hold back on giving them the military equipment and the budget and economic assistance they need to persist and win. Secretary, you have a personal family connection to Ukraine. How has that influenced your desire to serve in this post and and how you approach this post? Well, why did my great-grandfather leave Ukraine? The same issue that's going on today. The Russian pogroms 140 years ago destroyed my family's grain store and threatened the life and livelihood of my ancestors. And here we are, 140 years later, and Russia is trying to do the same thing. We need to help. That's Penny Pritzker, Special Representative for Ukraine Reconstruction and Economic Recovery. She's also a former Commerce Secretary. Secretary, thank you. Thank you so much.
This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report tells us about the growing number of states requiring students to take personal finance courses in order to graduate from high school. Mostly overcast in upper 50s today. Tonight, cloudy and windy with a good chance of rain. It'll be in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, rain is likely and the gusty winds continue. We'll have temperatures near 60. It's 38 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at zevin.com. Eight groups and communities are getting money from the Healy administration for cleanup efforts at waste disposal sites across Massachusetts. The $160,000 in grants is being awarded as part of the Technical Assistance Grant Program. Officials say the money will be used to increase participation in the cleanup efforts. A software firm with a location in Burlington is laying off 75 of its Massachusetts-based workers. According to a warn notice filed this week, Broadcom will lay off the employees starting in April. Company officials tell the Boston Business Journal they do not plan to close the Burlington facility. Late last year, the company shuttered one of its newly acquired Boston offices. A popular and historic ice cream shop on Cape Cod is looking for a new owner. Four Seas Ice Cream in Centerville is up for sale. The owners tell the Cape Cod Times they want to start planning for retirement. The business has been an ice cream shop since 1934 and served the likes of the Kennedys and Taylor Swift. It's 844. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage, themusicemporium.com. balance is really important. I'm Aisha Roscoe, host of Weekend Edition. So when I look at my old minivan, I'm balancing on the one hand, new car payment, and on the other, driving around for another year with that smell of spilled milk in the back. Whenever the balance tips for your old car, give it a chance to do one more good deed. Donate it to this station and turn it into the programs we all love. Learn more at WBUR.org cars. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Michelle Martin. As state and local officials plan to spend billions of opioid settlement dollars, they have choices to make. Do they prioritize services for people in crisis today or try to reduce addiction rates 10 years from now? In Alabama, a group of consultants and tech experts say they have a tool to help make those decisions. Local recovery advocates are skeptical. Anari Patani with our partner KFF Health News reports from Mobile. Addiction has touched every corner of Lisa Taggart's life. She's been in recovery for over a decade. She lost her sister to an overdose, and she's watched her son struggle with heroin. Driving her black Infinity around Mobile one Tuesday afternoon, she thought back to what it was like visiting him in the hospital. He was intubated and they weren't sure if he was gonna make it. And to go through that and to 
watch him breathe and then survive. Yeah, it's overwhelming. Her son's also in recovery now, and Taggart knows she's one of the lucky moms because he's still alive. He's real super tall. When I hug him, my ear is about at his heart. And if I could sneak a hug to hear that heartbeat, I do. Taggart is trying to pass that luck forward. She runs two sober living homes where people can stay in a drug-free space at low cost. She helps her residents with whatever they need to get through the day. Sometimes that means picking up groceries. Other times it's giving them a ride to a job interview. But Taggart only has 18 spots in her sober living homes. I got 14 calls yesterday that I had to say, I'm sorry, I don't have any beds. I'm sorry, I don't have any beds. So when she heard that the state of Alabama was receiving millions of dollars from companies that fueled the opioid crisis by marketing their painkillers, she had high hopes for the settlement money. I hope it really goes to the individual. What does the individual need? In the state of Alabama, we need a lot. In late January, Taggart was invited to an event in downtown Mobile hosted by the Helios Alliance, a group of consultants, statisticians, and artificial intelligence experts. It was her first look at how those opioid dollars might be spent in her community. Good morning. We've invited you here today for an exciting announcement by the Port. That day, the Helios Alliance told dozens of elected officials and advocates that it was bringing its simulation platform to Alabama. The platform takes in local data about addiction services and the drug supply. It then simulates the impact different policies or spending decisions can have on overdose deaths and addiction rates. Helios says it can help local officials answer critical questions like, would it save more lives to invest in housing or in treatment? This is a game changer. Stephen Lloyd is co-chair of the Helios board. There's a bunch of cameras in the room, and I hope other states watch this. A local Native American tribe and a state agency have contributed $750,000 to build the Helios platform for Alabama. Helios says it needs $750,000 more to complete it. They're telling local officials, you can use 5% of your opioid settlement funds to build this tool. Then the tool will tell you how to best spend the rest. Ten Alabama cities are considering investing, including Mobile. Stephen McNair is director of external affairs for the city. When it comes to these kind of settlements, we have an obligation to the people of Mobile to use it in a way that is going to do the most good. And we really hope the Helios platform can provide that information. But after the Helios announcement, Lisa Taggart had a different take. I'm a person in the trenches with people who we don't have beds. We don't have clean needle program. We don't have uh, enough treatment beds. And it's like, when is the money going to get to them? She says giving opioid money to Helios is confusing when people need housing today and a ride to the pharmacy tomorrow. It's a constant struggle balancing urgent needs and long-term goals. State and local officials nationwide will face it for years to come as settlement funds roll in. That was Aneri Patani with our partner KFF Health News, and this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And I'm Steve Inskip. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll tell us about a life sentence that's been handed down for the leader of one of Europe's biggest drug smuggling networks. It's 849. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. You follow the news every day on WBUR. But how well do you really know the news? It's time to play the puzzle. One across, digital trash. Five letters, south of Ecuador. Play the WBUR crossword puzzle anytime at WBUR.org slash fun. Five across, biggest toy maker. Four down, rock concert pit. Play the WBUR crossword free every day at WBUR.org slash fun.
fun. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. President Biden says Israel would be willing to pause fighting in Gaza during Ramadan if an agreement is re- reached to release hostages. But Gaza, but but Israel and Hamas have indicated that no deal is imminent. Federal regulators are suing to stop a merger between supermarket giants Albertsons and Kroger, and primary voters head to the polls in Michigan today. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include German International School Boston's Fast Track, accelerated language learning for students new to German, virtual info night tomorrow, gisbos.org. Upper 50s today under mostly overcast skies. Upper 40s tonight and there's a good chance of rain and some gusty winds. Back to the upper 50s tomorrow and rain is likely. It'll also be windy. It's 39 degrees in Boston. A tree grows in a news desert. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Affinity, provider of the CRM for the private capital relationship economy. Affinity knows who has the best relationship with the right startup. Affinity.co slash marketplace. And by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. I'm David Brancaccio. They say all politics is local, so where's the local news coverage this election year? I've been traveling to what are called news deserts in Super Tuesday states to hear about the business models that are failing or informing voters as they make their choices in one week. Our Democracy in the Desert coverage stays in Texas this morning. Part of a group of six contiguous counties close to the U.S. border listed as news deserts. Yesterday, we heard about the last daily newspaper in Valverde County that folded more than three years ago. Today, who's covering things now? If I can get a better understanding of what is needed. On a winter Wednesday in the county seat of Del Rio, the best show in town may be this regular meeting of the elected commissioners who see to the county's business. The presiding officer for the county is unhappy with the city, and his language is Texas spicy. We've met with him, and he's a dipshit. The commissioners, experts, and residents are looking to fix low water pressure in one neighborhood. Things also get edgy about a location for early voting in the run-up to next week's election. The more cramped space wins. It's crucial stuff. And are there any reporters in this news desert to write up the highlights, you know, other than a visitor like me? Well, there is. A very experienced reporter named Karen Gleason. All politicians will talk to me. I make a deal with people. I say either answer my phone call or tomorrow morning I'm going to show up outside your office. And over the years... I have built trust with these people. Gleason's been reporting from this part of Texas since the 1980s, with many years at the Del Rio News-Herald, the daily paper that died in 2020. Now she works for the local online news site here called 830 Times. 830 is the area code. Karen is very good at stories small and stories big. They started coming across the river just upstream of the International Bridge where it's very shallow. She's talking about 2021, when thousands of people from Haiti gathered under the border bridge here seeking asylum. Now, if you need context and depth, our colleagues at Texas Public Radio would, in the fullness of time, provide that with an incisive and extensive podcast series called Line in the Land. Especially since the humanitarian need is so apparent and so great. 
But in the very first days of the story, locals were desperate for news on what was happening on the ground, with Border Patrol limiting access. It was Gleason with the contacts to enlist help from the mayor, who had gone to school with her son. He goes, we're going to hide you in the back of my car. They covered me with blankets, and we went through the Border Patrol checkpoint at the fence. And he'd tell me, like, okay, nobody's looking. 830 Times is nonpartisan and has a paper edition that comes out Fridays, plus occasional Facebook Live broadcasts. It is not the newspaper of yore, but it is a resource. Joel Langton, 830 Times publisher, tells me it is a crock of you-know-what that media researchers call this a desert. We put out anywhere from 24 to 40 pages of news every week. It's hyper-local, but if you... Talk to some pointy head from Northwestern University, they're going to say it's a news desert. Well, I guess what? You haven't set foot here. He's selling ads and paid legal notices to bring in money. Langton had a long career with the Air Force and did PR for the base here, Laughlin. Like many a startup, 830 Times has been supported in part by Joel's own savings. My retirement fund is not as good as it was, but it's not being drained as quickly as it was at one time either. And for now, his business also depends on the family money of one of his reporters, who, let me emphasize, is not complaining. You know, I am making probably about a third of what I was making at the News Herald. I am married to a very, very wonderful man who has agreed to basically pay all my bills. Valverde is one of six contiguous counties here classified as news deserts. Langton says he can count at least six other info sources in the region. Info, but is it news? A former border agent named Frank Lopez Jr. has a Facebook site with the handle U.S. Border Patriot, where he does stand-ups to camera TV correspondent style, often from the border fence. People coming across, he calls invaders. Is the Biden administration and Alejandro Mayorkas, the globalist. Lopez wears many hats. Border Patriot former chair of the county Republican Party, and candidate for U.S. Congress next week. But as I look across the scrubland here in South Texas, it's worth noting what a desert is. You still have shrubs, you have various plants, you just don't have as lush a, a landscape as you did in the past. That is Penny Muse Abernathy, a professor with Northwestern University's Local News Initiative, which studies the decline of local news in America. Her group lists 204 news deserts across the U.S. and 228 counties on a watch list at high risk of losing their last news outlet. Tomorrow, we'll turn to another Super Tuesday state, North Carolina, to hear what happened when one of the biggest election scandals of the modern era played out in a county without many reporters. All of our Democracy in the Desert coverage is accumulating at Marketplace.org. Markets S&P futures are up slightly. NASDAQ futures are now up two-tenths percent. Dow futures have just turned down. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Schwab. Schwab knows that investors want control of their financial future. That's why when it comes to wealth management, Schwab is dedicated to giving investors more choices. More at schwab.com. And by Odoo, focused on providing all-in-one open-source business management software with fully integrated applications for every business need. More at odoo.com. We're tracking the story in progress. Trouble at pharmacies processing prescriptions because of a cyber attack that began last week. The alleged perps, a known criminal ransomware outfit. Here's Marketplace's Nova Safo. 
The ransomware attack prompted United Healthcare to take offline an IT system which helps pharmacies process claims. The company could not estimate how long the disruption would last. Reuters says the group behind the attack is the ransomware gang known as Black Cat. In December, law enforcement took several of its websites down. The group at the time promised retaliation. It's unclear what the extent of the current disruption is, but pharmacies say it's causing a significant backlog. They're urging patients who are running out of prescriptions to contact providers for a few days' supply to hold them over. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report from APM. American Public Media. Mostly cloudy and upper 50s today, a good chance of rain tonight. It'll also be windy with temperatures in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, rain is likely and the high winds continue. Temperatures will be near 60. Then a drastic change on Thursday with a chance of snow in the early morning. Then it'll be sunny and only in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston. And the BBC News Hour is coming up next. Education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.